Good morning. My name is Sam, as uh, Pastor Tommy said, and um, uh, I want, I'm part of the uh, elder team here uh, at Watermark, uh, and this morning I'll be sharing uh, about faith. Um, <clears throat> before, though, it was a little chilly this morning, right? Like, it was cold and it got hot, and then now it's like a little bit... No, it's not chilly. I think it's like everything under 70 is chilly in Tampa standards. Is it not? No? Where I see like infinity scarves and knee-high boots start popping out and people start longing for pumpkin spice latte, which is also the season. We're welcome to uh, the season where I I think where uh, Starbucks uh, destroys Christmas or have a war on Christmas. They... uh, they started their new, uh, what is it, Green Cup or whatever, which I don't get, but I, was, I think I was watching Stephen Colbert, and uh, they were, someone tweeted, like, someone tweeted, like, green Starbucks cups, uh, war on Christmas, hashtag last days. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I was like, this, this is the last days, guys. It's, uh... So anyhow, um, thank you for uh, joining this morning. Uh, I know it was tough. Actually, it's not that tough when it's daylight savings, right? Because we gained the hours. So you guys all had extra sleep. Everybody feels a little bit refreshed, except those without children, with children. Uh, then, you know, your life is always uh, a mess. So <laughs> that's that. So we're, di- we're taking a break. <clears throat> I, I'm getting a little bit uh, over from a, a cold. So <clears throat> I actually don't know how my voice is sounding. It might sound very sexy or very, like, unsure. So, we're taking a break from Galatians uh, to talk about faith this morning, and so we'll talk about certainty and some of the dangers uh, around it and how God wants us to have this sort of a covenant relationship, sort of this marriage-like faith, And, and so I'll explain that. So, let's pray and get started. So, Father God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the community. Thank you, Lord, uh, for the church. I ask, oh, Father, to help us uh, focus, especially me, oh, God. Help me to remember uh, the, the preparation and, and the points and what you really want to get to, oh, Father. So I, I, I pray, oh, Father, whatever I may communicate, oh, Father, that it may be from your heart uh, inspired by you, Holy Spirit, and that it may be received, oh, Father, uh, like a seed that's planted, oh, Father, that it may, it may grow into something uh, of a beauty. So I pray, Holy Spirit, um, that we just invite you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So I, I think uh, within popular culture, uh, especially, um, I don't know if you noticed, like, sometimes when people talk about faith, they, they talk about it in terms of certainty, in terms of gaining certainty, because I have to believe in that sense of this absolute type of mindset. And, and for me, uh, you know, like you would say, uh, that person has a very strong faith. That they, that person doesn't have any doubts about certain things. And, and I think at that point, I, you know, it's kind of bizarre to me because, like, at that point, is that really faith? Because it, it, just by its definition, is it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Also, in popular culture and movies, and for some reason, I was thinking "Touched by an Angel." I don't know if any of you guys seen that. For those who were born before '90s. Um, Touched by an angel is like, I remember their taglines, even when I was little. I was like, you just have to believe. 
You just have to have faith. And it always struck me as a little bit odd, even though it was a great show, um, of how you have to believe. But it's almost as if people are talking about it in terms of certainty, which sounds, again, strange. Um, And I think there are unintended consequences uh, because in some ways also it gives you permission of judgment of others. Who, have, who do not have, share the same sort of certainty, almost a superiority of complex. So when faith is about hope, trust, and confidence, and certainty is about being absolutely sure, uh, we'll talk more about what it means to be psychologically sure, because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like this cognitive faith, something that is a mental skill, a mental might um, in a way. So how much faith do you need to be saved? You know, Maybe that might be one of the questions. Do I need to be 100% safe or 100% sure? Do I need to be 99% sure? If it's a grading scale, can I get by with a C plus or a very promising D? Would that work? You know, is God going to curb me on a scale? Um, obviously, that's hypothetical. Um, but obviously, I don't think that's how God sees it. And so there's this danger of this way of thinking and, and every theology or every concept that we have, we have to align with the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus. And we have to see how does that square with it? How does that align with this you got to be sure type of faith? So we're going to look at uh, James chapter 2. Um, uh, James chapter 1, verse 2 to 6. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and do not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, and that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So what I wanted to focus on is verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Uh, There's another verse or another passage in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus is telling his disciples, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can do amazing things. You can do incredible things if you believe. So there's uh, passages like this that I think actually have been misinterpreted and sort of hijacked uh, by different streams of Christianity, one of them being uh, sort of this uh, prosperity, name it, claim it gang. They're not really a gang, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, This type of prosperity movement is that if you believe strong enough uh, that God will give you that promotion. If you need transportation and if you ask for specifically that, you know, whatever car it may be, he will give it to you. Uh, Usually it comes with some sort of a seed that you have to sow, usually money, that you have to give to a preacher. And then it will happen. That's sort of this, obviously that's one part, but I think it's actually this mindset, especially with commercialism, it's actually kind of spread out. And I think there's this mindset of God being like Santa Claus or Oprah, you get a promotion, you know, you get a promotion, everybody gets promotion. Ah! And 
it's, uh, it's, I think it's, I don't know if it's a Western idea, because I, I've, I've witnessed this even in South Africa, where I see this multi-million dollar huge church right next to slums, uh, with, with AIDS epidemic high as 60%, unemployment rate high as 80%, but the preacher is driving a nice car and, uh, and live very pretty comfortably because he has faith. So that's some extreme uh, in it, but let's, let's use, let me use an analogy. So let's say Jack, Zach, Jack, Zach, he really likes Jill. He'd been praying about it, and uh, he really believes that she's the one. He's so sure because God told him she's the one. So he's praying for marriage and for her because he still haven't told her this. But at the same time, Jill is actually saying, please, anyone except Jack, you know, in her mind. So let's say if both of them have this absolute certain faith, sort of who wins out? Is it the person who has uh, the strongest? Now, that obviously, it's sort of a hypothetical, uh, well, actually, it might be real for some people, but a hypothetical uh, uh, example. But think about in more serious situations, not that that wasn't serious, but think of it more in a grave situation where there's a single mom uh, looking for a specific job. And, and she really needs the money. She just lost, uh, she just got laid off and she really needs it. Uh, so she finds this one job in a small town uh, that she's praying really hard. But what if someone else is praying for the exact same job? You know, and sort of, so who, who wins out? It's sort of in these ways. So obviously, I'm trying to make an analogy here that, that, or give an example that the faith doesn't actually work like that. Um, I was, I grew up in a very, Pentecostal, hyper-charismatic uh, type of environment, and I think I've told this story before where I, like, had to, uh, my mom, like, forced me to speak in tongues. Uh, she told me, like, I couldn't leave the church until we uh, left, so she was like, say hallelujah super fast, and so I did, and she's like, ah, oh, you're speaking in tongues. And um, so I grew up in a very hyper-Pentecostal uh, uh, type of environment, uh, and I remember when I was uh, working at a mission organization in the Caribbean, uh, we were in a prayer meeting. And um, it, was, uh, it was like kind of improv. Well, I mean, well, it was sort of planned, but you get what I'm saying. Um, so it was like 20, 25 of us, and we were praying for the country of Barbados, of the nation that we were in. And a lot of young men. And uh, this guy, like, he came late, and he hijacked the whole thing. And he started preaching about, like, he gave us a sermonette about a faith. And then he said, everyone who has glasses, put it in the middle of the room. Now, this is not my first put your glass in the middle of the room rodeo. That has happened before. <laughs> and so I know what was going to go, what was going to happen. The sad thing is he was so, like, um, charismatic about it. And it was very anticlimactic because nothing happened. Um, maybe we all lack faith. Maybe that was the case. Um, but, and by the way, I believe in healing. I believe in signs and wonders, but I believe there's place and right way of, uh, of doing it, uh, in humility and, and spirit of, uh, of Jesus. 
Um, but at the same time, some of those uh, ways of thinking can be heartbreaking. Imagine if you are struggling with chronic pain. Imagine if you're struggling with terminal illness. Imagine if that pain doesn't go away. Or even worse, that person passes away. So, how are people around them supposed to feel? Is, this, is there a sense of, maybe we didn't do enough. Maybe we didn't pray hard enough. Maybe I didn't believe hard enough. When I was uh, 15 or 16 years old, um, my, uh, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and <clears throat> it, w- it was a bit hard, obviously. Um, uh, it, it, it progressed pretty rapidly. And uh, she tried special diets. She tried all these sorts of things, tons of prayer meetings. Uh, none of it seemed like it was working. She lost tons of weight very, very quickly. Uh, she was down to about 80 pounds, I think, uh, towards the last weeks of her life. Um, at the same time, though, my, my dad uh, told me he, he wanted me to go on this mission trip to Mexico. And um, I really didn't want to. He bribed me. That's the reason. Until this day, he still hasn't paid. But, you know, that's another story. And uh, he believed that it will change, I guess, my life in a way, me and my brother, actually. And, um, and it did. But I remember throughout the mission trip, I gave testimonies of, of how my mom outlived what the doctors thought and that I had faith that she was going to live. And unfortunately, that didn't happen, um, and she passed away. Uh, when I came back from that mission trip, they said, uh, you know, your mom passed away five days ago. And uh, they didn't want to tell me that because I was on this mission trip. Um, and obviously, I was very confused and angry at this time because here I was just actually a few days. I remember actually few, my mother passed away on Saturday. Wednesday, the three days before, I committed my life to God again. And, and here was this thing that, that sort of happened. And, and I was angry and confused because I believed. I believed that my mother would have been healed. And so let me be honest. At the same time, besides anger, I, I felt guilt. I felt shame. I felt, um, and I struggled with that. Uh, for quite some time. And I, I imagine um, those who have lost uh, death in their family might feel the same way of this guilt that we've, you know, didn't pray hard enough or didn't believe hard enough. And it took a while to realize that obviously wasn't the case uh, and that there are a lot of variables. Uh, but this type of thinking impacts more than just, I think, what we think of healing. It it comes from this idea in order for you to have faith, you have to, have, you have to be absolutely certain even in your own salvation or pretty darn close to it. And so this is especially true, I think, even for salvation or those who are struggling with self-worth and questioning, how can I be sure I am saved? Well, you may ask, do, I, do you need enough faith for healing or salvation or some sort of crisis that you have? And the reason why this breakthrough isn't happening is because... I don't have enough faith. The, the problem is this is totally transactional. It's, it's this thinking that I have to believe in a certain way. I have to believe 
and, and I give you this certainty, and here's God giving you whatever you ask for. And obviously, it's not like that. It's by grace. It's by relationship. It's by the covenant. It's not about being certain. And it's, it's interesting because the apostles had faith. Uh, I'm sorry. Apostles had faith, but they also had doubt. So did Abraham, the father of faith. He had continuous doubts. Him sleeping with his servant was evidence of that doubt. Um, John the Baptist had doubt. If you, if you recall, John the Baptist, he was there for Jesus for the launch of his ministry, the dough flying or whatever, all that. But if you recall when John the Baptist was imprisoned and before he was being about to be beheaded, um, he got some of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask, are you the real Messiah? Should we look for someone else? Should we keep looking? So let me say that for whatever reason, my relationship with God, I think, actually became stronger after my mother passed away. He became, in a, in a way, more real to me, um, and I was confused and angry at some times, but at the same time, I think I made a commitment or a decision that I might not understand, but I will still follow you. And I believe God blessed that to some degree. Now, going back to the uh, James passage, let's read this again. Uh, James wasn't talking about anything in terms of material. He was talking specifically about wisdom. Look at it in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. It wasn't like if any of you lacks a jaguar, ask and I'll give it to you. If any of you lacks wisdom. And, and in New Living Translation, it actually says in verse 8, their loyalty is divided between God and the world. So, In this context, it means very well to do not doubt. He meant who you go for wisdom, who you go for life, who you go for for your worth, your identity, that he will take care of you. He got your back to put trust in him. So it actually doesn't support this mental faith. When it becomes about the mental faith, unfortunately, it becomes about what you believe. It becomes more about what you believe rather than who you believe in. So Even in this context, um, having faith is not about removing doubt from your mind, but it's about who you trust to give you life. Okay? So we're going to move into another uh, aspect of faith uh, is sometimes I think faith is an idol, uh, which I'll explain. Idolatry and ideology actually comes from the same Greek term, eidos, uh, meaning essence. So understanding this, this idea, both of them come from this idea of essence, uh, it helps us. Um, Peter Rollins, he, he says, it can, <clears throat> he says, it can be understood to refer to any attempt that would render the essence of God accessible, uh, bring God into either aesthetic visibility in the form of physical structure, uh, such as a statue or conceptual visibility in the form of a concept, like a theological system perhaps. Um, so, whoo. The, the problem is, <clears throat> what the ancient people did was reduce God into a physical form. The dangers that we have today is that we can reduce God into a conceptual form in our minds. Are you with me? 
So the problem we have with certainty is that we can create this conceptual idols in our minds like ancient people did with physical. And for both of them, we're reducing God into something much smaller than he really is. So let me talk about, uh, to explain further, let's look at the story of the golden calf. Uh, Moses led the people out of the Egypt. Uh, Moses led the people out of the Egypt. Uh, and, and they were on this journey. Uh, they're going toward the promised land, and uh, he was up in uh, Mount Sinai uh, receiving instructions from the Lord, and people were getting anxious. They were saying, where is Moses? Did, did he die? Is he up there? No, he's not coming back to us anymore. We need a new leader. We need God. We need help in this area. Um, so what happened was Aaron... He took up on himself uh, what people were going up to him. And so Aaron gave instructions to get all the gold from everyone. Um, which is funny, because if you recall, like, this was the gold that they got from uh, their owners, the Egyptian owners. And what they did is they made it into a golden calf or a young bull. It's actually a young bull. I don't, I don't know why we keep calling it calf. But it's a... Um, so what happened was... He took the gold from the people and they fashioned it into this young bull. Which is interesting because it's the same language in Genesis where God fashioned man. So here is the people of Israel trying to fashion God in in their image, in their mindset. Trying to do the same thing to God. Um, the bull, young bull, was actually very popular in other cultures. Uh, and what some theologians actually argue was that what they were doing was a visual representation of Yahweh. So it wasn't like they were creating a whole other God. This is what they knew. This is what they thought Yahweh was, um, as you read it in the scripture. Uh, so it's not that they were just creating a new God. This is what they had in their minds. Interestingly, uh, this is Apis, uh, or Hapis, uh, a sacred bull deity in, uh, in ancient Egypt. Uh, it was very popular, actually, uh, not just in Egyptian culture, but I think the Canaanites as well. Uh, they, some sort of a young bull, bull type of uh, idol uh, or in the area. And uh, so what's interesting here is that they, they were going back to what they knew. You get what I'm saying? Um, Here's a God that you can be certain of. You had trouble putting trust in this God that you may not know. And so think about that. That's all they've known in the slavery in Egypt. Uh, And here's Aaron giving to them God reduced to a visual form, which is obviously not him, but in their minds, this is the God that brought them out of Egypt. So think about that, I think, for our own lives, how we revert back to our old selves, to our old form, to what we know, what we're comfortable with, to what we're certain. When there's a crisis, when we become anxious, how much times we sort of slip back into that, into that old way of thinking. And so we revert back to what we're comfortable with and what we are certain with. So in this sense, this idolatry, uh, because it's not about confidence and trust in God. It becomes about your confidence and trust in what you believe about God. Um, <clears throat> we have to recognize that our language, our description falls short of this beauty of who he is, of who God is. 
because he's so much bigger and better than our understanding of God. This is why I think we have to be cautious uh, of how we construct God in our minds. I'm sure you've been around people who seem to be sure all the time. It can be a little bit annoying sometimes, but unless you're the person, which sometimes I struggle with this as well. Uh, And they're trying to be certain and so sure on everything that they might not be open to the possibility that they could be wrong. Because of this type of faith, it's like Legos. Imagine, I'm sh- I'm, uh, if you, for those who were children, which I think most of you were, uh, I'm sure most of you played with Legos or some version of it. Uh, you build this magnificent structure, and some self-serving sibling comes and knocks it down. <laughs> you know? Um, and similarly, I think sometimes our, our faith is like that. It's almost like it's kind of brittle in, in a way, or Jenga like that, like, or House of Cards, where it's one set is taken away and everything sort of falls down and your faith crumbles. So similarly, one set of belief is strength. It's like the whole thing can be in danger of being broken down. So to think of it another way, uh, think about like an uh, internet or cable package. I think now you can get internet by itself, which I, I do, but I think a while back, like, you had to have internet, telephone, landline. Why don't you need a landline? I don't know. Cable package. You have to have these things. Uh, who's, who am I going to call? I don't know. Um, so it's almost like this bundle package of faith, uh, and you have to have faith in this way because, in a way, I guess, this type of faith where you're only seeking for certainty, you're only looking for things that support your faith, you're only looking for things that will reinforce your faith. So what happens is you start building a psychological wall around you to protect you from anything that can threaten uh, what you believe because there's comfort in that, there's safety in that. Um, One example of this might be maybe when you went to a I don't know, if any of you went to Bible college or took a course or, or a new church or a, a cell group or house church or whatever, and maybe another friend says, hey, did that, did they confirm what you believe? You know, did the preacher sort of speak in what you believe? Did, did it confirm what you already know? Did that agree with what you believe? Uh, and for me, growing up in a very conservative sort of fundamentalist type of environment, it's almost like I had a built-in alarm. If anything, that's totally different from what I've already known. There's this like, heresy, heresy, heresy that was coming in my head. I don't know if any of you guys identify about that. But this is one of the main reasons why I think many young people, I'm trying to avoid the using the word millennials, but many young people have left the faith um, because they have been only relying for a certain amount of time to some degree, their parents' faith. And so once you are moving past that, you become an adult and you moved out or whatever, you can't do that anymore. You have to, and it's tough because, you know, once you go to college or whatever, have, and you've came out of, in a sense, an academic bubble, it can be very, very tough. So it's it's dangerous way uh, to hold on to your faith, to remain certain. And once you start questioning one element of it, uh, it no longer becomes certain. You start questioning anything else. Since it's packaged or in this bundle model of faith, 
so it may be like this person goes to college and the professor makes him or her question the Genesis account of creation um, or talks about some archaeology finding or new neuroscience that like totally disproves God. There's no way with a shadow of that there can't be God uh, with this new evidence uh, that's out there. Um, and they get rid, and sometimes what happens is they come dismayed, and maybe you have friends like this, and they walk away from faith entirely. Because I think how we've set this up is almost like science and God, like either or. Um, which is terrible because we've somehow put this illusion that it's this either or mentality, which is not. I understand some Christians are uncomfortable. Uh, with the theory of evolution, there's other Christians who are very comfortable with it and who are able to reconcile these two different things. Uh, we have people who absolutely believe in literal six-day creation probably at this church. We have young earth theory, whatever, whatever you may believe. Uh, if you believe in some of these things, don't. it's a lie. It's a lie to believe that those things lessen your reality of God. Those people who read the Bible, I think sometimes misread it as a, this 21st century book, which has many genres and meant for the original audience, which is inspired and, and, and has a lot of things that we sometimes don't understand. And there's a lot of people who walked away from their faith because they could not rationally reconcile science and the stories of the Bible because they're reading it with a different lens. And, and for those who struggle... Uh, there's a lot of resources out there, uh, either for or against or whatever, but I think we need to be informed. There's resources like Biologos, uh, there's theologians, there's scientists. I, I think I can't remember the, uh, the, the guy who was a leader of the Human Genome Project. He wrote a book of Evidence of God. There's a lot of stuff out there I think you have to take into account. It doesn't have to be all or nothing type of faith. It's understandable if you have a neat package, and once someone comes in and starts to self-deconstruct their own faith, it can be a tough process. And I've had several friends who went through this process and have lost their faith, but then I've also had friends who went through this process and had a, a stronger sense, a better vision, a better posture of God's vision and heart for the world, a new hope. For those of you, friends and family, who struggle with this, don't shut down their questions. Be there for them. Even if you don't necessarily agree in one way or another, help them in their process. Focus on the center of center. Because we lose our minds sometimes over the peripherals, things that are on the sidelines. Focus on Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. As Jesus talks about there are heavier things of the law, not all doctrines, I think, have the same value to some degree. You should challenge yourself, encourage conversations. And I know that can be difficult for those who struggle with, uh, with their faith, but this could be a lifeline for some people. And so for those who, of you who have family and friends, it's really not our job to just correct them all the time or shut it down. Extend grace, extend love, and encourage that conversation in their own journey. Um, just because you struggle with certain beliefs, it should not lessen the reality of God. And it's okay to be honest with God and your community and say that I trust that, you know, some, some of these things are, 
I believe it's inspired and it's true, but I just have a hard time explaining why. It's okay to say that, I think. Um, God can take that. And so for us within our community, I think it's important to focus on the core, which is the life, sacrifice, resurrection of Jesus. And even if you doubt that, there's a lot of reason of this historical Jesus that we see in the New Testament to be true. There's tons of books written on that. Go check it out. There's resources available for you, available to you. Uh, But your life and confidence should not be based on the life. Well, it should, sorry. It should be based on life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you get it wrong, if I get it wrong, a majority of the things that I believe, if I, if that, I, your identity should not be wrapped up on those peripherals. When you change your posture, this allows God to speak more into your life because you're no longer just in the confines of what you know, but allow yourself to, and to be liberated to some degree. But let me give you a quick warning. Um, in a way, you can go through this deconstructing mode where you're taking off all the Legos. Um, it's good to go through that process every once in a while, but it's tough when you are in it for a very, very long time. Uh, it's okay to continue to deconstruct, but at the end of the day, you still have to commit. You can't be dating for 15 years. You have to commit. You get me? Um, so you have to act on this trust. If you want something certain, it just, it just won't come. The idea of certainty and faith and doubt is very much like idea of love and marriage as well. And this is what I wanted to really end with, is that one of the many questions that I hear a lot of people when it comes to marriage is, how do you know? How do you know that this person is the one? Is there a test for that? Is there, is there a BuzzFeed test that I can take that I know that they're the one? Uh, there's probably like thousands of those, but the truth is, and I'm sure if you're married, I'm sure you've been asked this question as well by your friends or others. Um, truth is you don't know if they are the one. Um, I don't know if this is sort of like this Western idea or whatnot, but, um, you have no idea how this person is going to grow up because if you're you know, getting married in your 20s or whatever, they might totally change. They might be a completely different person five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. You really don't know. So can you be certain that this person is the one that I should get married to? It's better to do it within a community where there's a safety net there, but there, there are no guarantees. You have to be confident enough with the knowledge that you have about this person and that trust that it's going to work. So faith that is taught in the Bible is covenant-based. It's relational. Uh, It's very much like a marriage. Um, It's very much like a marriage. Paul even talks about in Ephesians, described that here is this mystery that's been revealed, uh, which is very profound mystery, that marriage and the two becoming one refers to the Christ and the church. So faith that's described here is like a marriage with each side committing to the other. God has already committed by becoming like us um, and sacrificing his life on the cross. Uh, And it's also for us to commit to him, making him Lord in every part of our lives. Think about Abraham and when his wife was old and barren, he still believed that God would make him to a great nation. Think about the challenges. They were old and barren and, and, and... And obviously, 
There was a lot of doubt there, but he still stepped out of his homeland to a land that he did not know, and he trusted that God would deliver on his promise. And if you look at it this way, the opposite of faith is actually not doubt. Opposite of faith is inaction. Opposite of faith is uncommitment, which very much so lines up with James. In James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it is not have, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith, the prop from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. To have faith that is just sure in the head is useless. Uh, in my heart, I'm a vegetarian, but I love bacon. Uh, you see the little. It, it, I'm conflicted every time um, I'm at a barbecue place. Um, let's say I believe with strong conviction that God will help all the homeless, but if you don't do anything, not even lift a finger, what good is that? What good is that conviction? That conviction becomes useless. However, if you have faith that's talked about like in James, it's totally backed by your actions. At the end of the day, it's not how certain you are about your faith, it's how your actions show you about your faith. Additionally, let me go back to that older couple. Um, I think it's a good imagery. Um, additionally, thinking you're saved because you believe in certain things is like thinking I'm married because deep down inside, I know she's my wife. Well, Kizia, uh, she, it's my wife's name, it'll be, it'll be 10 years uh, next year. And we have two kids, seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And so it's getting pretty serious. Uh, <laughs> we're getting there. Um, but let's say for some reason I start acting like a single person uh, when I go, you know, get some really, really delicious sushi or food or whatever. I only get it for myself. She's like, what's up with that? I don't know, baby, you didn't ask. Um, I start having my own bank account. I just started taking vacations by myself. Um, I start making plans and I don't really tell her, you know, what's new phone? Who's this? Maybe when she texts me or whatever. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. That's my ADD moment. Sorry. Um, when you get married, you're not going to just believe you're married. Uh, you get married to become one and not to live like a single person. You know what you're, it's trouble when a married people act like single people. Once you get married, you think in terms of us and not me or I. Likewise, what saves you is not what you are sure in your faith. It's not salvation by this mental might. It's salvation by grace. It's by the relationship. It's the relationship that brings us healing. It's the relationship and communion that brings us reconciliation. It's the relationship that allows us to forgive and accept forgiveness. It's the relationship that brings transformation and real change in our lives. It's not this intellectual belief about Jesus being really real and making yourself certain of that. You're living your life in the kingdom reality because Jesus is the reality of your life. 
Because of that, you're changing the way you live. You're changing your buying habits. You're changing your attitude in life you, because you're married. You're no longer, longer living with four other dudes eating ramen every day of the week because you're married. So if that's the case in a humanly marriage, how should that change for us as a church, the bride marrying to Jesus? It's not about my beliefs about our marriage that will keep the marriage working. It's the work that you put in because of the relationship and the sacrifice that goes into your making your relationship work. So we're, we're going to be taking communion now. And I want you to think about your faith and what it means in terms of putting your trust in him. Take some time to ponder this self-sacrificial love of Jesus and remember his body broken for us and the cup that was poured out for us. Here's something that's real, something that we can taste, something that we can feel, and take some time to remember what it means for you. So let's pray. Dear God, Abba Father, thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, that it won't be just real in our minds, but that it will be real in our lives and the reality of every day, day in and day out, that you're there, that you're here for us. I just want to thank you, Holy Spirit, Lord, for transformation, for continually changing our hearts and our minds. And I ask you, Lord, that we, we can't do this without you. We can't do life without you. That our identity is in you. It's not in material things. It's not in our minds. It's not in our beliefs or what we specifically think we believe. But it's in you, Holy Spirit. So I ask you, Lord, to change our hearts. Help us to see the way you do so that we may be more in tune with you, Holy Spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.